the righteous branch, Isaiah 11 and 12. This is yet another of a series in the book that we know as Isaiah. And of course, this is named for the prophet Isaiah, who wrote the words inspired by the Holy Spirit of God throughout the course of his life. And these things were compiled into a singular book of a of many themes. And yet it is a singular book of a single theme, really. And it is about God's righteousness. That is, God and his, and his righteousness and his holiness bringing about great change, great help, and great salvation. And so here we have this great book. We are in chapters 11 and 12 today. And there are many things that we have learned to this point. We've learned that God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the two kingdoms of Israel. And the southern kingdom, its capital is in Jerusalem. And so some of his addresses are directly to Jerusalem or the leaders of Jerusalem. We know that he was involved with the court of kings. And so we have a, a very interesting prophet and a very uh, great opportunity for us to learn so much because of the great ministry that came through Isaiah. And what we've found to this point in Isaiah is that uh, the Lord has has indicted Judah and Jerusalem of breaking the covenant in a great number of sins. And he gets very specific in some of those sins. And then he has pronounced that he will bring his wrath upon them and ultimately destroy them. And although he, in chapter 7, turns back a plot by Syria and the northern kingdom that were planning to attack Jerusalem, he has announced a still greater threat, and that threat is the empire of Assyria. And he has also shown, however, that he will dismantle Assyria herself. So today, as we look at Isaiah chapters 11 and 12, God's going to provide us a great contrast between the kingdom of God, this coming kingdom uh, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of Judah and Jerusalem and, and the northern kingdom and Syria and us Syria. He's going to provide for us a great contrast to all that has come before, of all the indictments, of all the sins that he's uh, charged all these other nations with. He is now going to give us a glimpse of what it will be like when he's in charge. What will it be like when the Lord Jesus Christ rules here on a renewed heaven and earth? And it's important. We're going to begin this, however, by looking at a single thread, a little analogy that Isaiah uses uh, at least three times. And we're going to see those and how they connect us to the scripture that we're working with today. First thing we want to look at are the trees in scripture. And we're going to see that Isaiah speaks of trimming trees or cutting them down entirely. And trees in scripture are all often indicative of nations, where a nation is spoken of as a great and stately tree. And this makes sense. It's something great and strong. It's something that can be seen for many miles. We see this in the book of Daniel, and this is used as a metaphor for Nebuchadnezzar and his rule. And it is a tree that's ultimately cut down in his vision that he has. And it was representative of Nebuchadnezzar uh, being humbled by God. In, in a very dramatic way. It also uh, leads us to the fig tree. In the New Testament, the uh, fig tree uh, that Jesus comes across in his last week before he's going to be crucified, he sees a fig tree. It's not putting forth fruit. He pronounces a curse upon it. 
they come by later and they see that indeed the, the tree had withered. And so they were perplexed. Why did Jesus ruin a perfectly good tree? He examined its leaves. He found no fruit. He cursed it. And it was indicative. He was giving a, an object lesson about the nation Israel. And he was indicating, you know, because of their rejection of Jesus Christ and because of his implementation of the kingdom age and sending the uh, gospel to the Gentiles, that their old system would be withered. And indeed, we did see that their temple was destroyed in AD 70 uh, within a generation of Jesus being here. And that indeed that tree was withered. So trees in the scriptures often speak of nations and important leaders. So here we have in Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, is something we really want to think about. In Isaiah chapter 6, we catch a glimpse of the uh, Lord being high and lifted up. Isaiah is given this vision as if he's standing in the throne room of God. And this sets us up then for the coming chapters because it begins with this great revelation of how incredibly and perfectly holy that God is. In fact, that's what the seraphim are singing, flying around him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah is, is asked, you know, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And the Lord tells him, you know, go and preach to these people. And the message is basically, they're not going to listen to you, but you're going to preach them to them and you're going to preach condemnation upon them. Okay. And listen to how he describes, God describes in verse 13, what he's going to do to Judah and Jerusalem. He says, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And then it goes on, starts talking about Ahaz and the situation here and the sign of Emmanuel and all these other things. And it just leaves out here this one little phrase at the end here, the holy seed is its stump. And it seems to be a cliffhanger like, okay, well, tell us more about this holy seed. What are you talking about? Well, he eventually gets around to it chapters later. And this holy seed being its stump, well, the word seed calls us back to Genesis chapter 3, in which the Lord, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he gives them a promise that the seed of the woman, the word means an offspring. He says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so there's this promise, which we know is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is this holy seed. And we come here and, and it's just kind of thrown out there at the end of this passage. And then it's not picked up until later. When is it picked up? Well, first we have to see something else. So here we see the first trimming of the trees and it is Judah. Judah herself is going to be trimmed down to nothing but a stump. And indeed, this historically is what happened. The city of Jerusalem was eventually destroyed by the uh, kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon, of course, took many people into exile, broke down the walls, destroyed the temple, and laid everything waste as the Lord is predicting. And so the next one comes in Isaiah chapter 10. In Isaiah chapter 10, we learn a very great and important revelation that even though Assyria is God's chosen nation to come and punish the nations of Judah, uh, or the nation of Judah and Jerusalem, um, that even though this is his chosen instrument, they're not righteous for it. In chapter 10, verse 7, 
it says of Assyria, he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. In other words, he doesn't think he's serving the Lord. He doesn't understand that he's serving the Lord. It's in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So from this point forward in chapter 10, he begins to pronounce judgment upon Assyria. He's like, I'm going to judge them for being so proud, and, and I'm going to cut them down. Look how he says it here in chapter 10, verses 28 to 32. It describes the approach of Assyria. If you were to trace out the cities named here, they come closer and closer and closer, pointing to Jerusalem, until finally in, in verse 32, they, they halt at Nob, and he shakes his fist, figuratively, at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So within sight of Jerusalem is when Assyria is stopped. If you want to read the dramatic unfolding of this, you simply have to turn to Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, where we have the beautiful account of God turning the Assyrians around. They accomplished what he wanted. They destroyed all of Judah except the city of Jerusalem, and they laid siege to it, and as it were, is said elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, right up to the neck is how he has Judah at this point. But then he pronounces his judgment upon Assyria. He says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts, that is God of armies, will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. And so he indicted Assyria with their pride and he's indicating that, that the lofty will be brought low. He is showing they will be humbled. They will be turned around. Lopping the bowels is an idea of pruning a tree. When you have a very large tree, in order to bring it down, you often trim off as many of the branches as possible. So when you drop the tree, it's not as great a disaster. But look at this. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And some people say, okay, how did Lebanon get involved here? That's another nation entirely. Well, in the scripture, the cedars of Lebanon, their cedar trees are often spoken of because they were legendary in their size and stature. Like the redwoods of the United States, these trees were profound in their size and in their health and in their value. And so he is likening Assyria to a great tall cedar of Lebanon, and he's saying, in essence, I am going to cut it down. And indeed, that is what he does here in verses 33 and 34. So here we have, so far, Judah's being cut down to a stump. Assyria's being cut down to a stump. And what is the very next verse after these? The first verse of our passage today, Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Do you see, he says, I'm cutting Judah down to a stump. I'm cutting Assyria down to a stump. But with Judah, I'm going to bring a shoot up from that stump. See, this is none other than Judah, the kingly line of Israel through David. This is a another mention of the stump, and this is a shoot coming out of it, where it's something that seemed to be dead, there is now life. Where there was no hope springs forth the one who will not be a ruler like the other nations have rulers. This is going to be a righteous ruler. And we're on a great ride here in chapter 11, learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. But first, I want to talk about this Jesse. Who is this Jesse we're talking of here in Isaiah chapter 11? Well, this is a uh, shoot shall come forth 
from the stump of Jesse. Already, the house of David has been addressed directly by Isaiah here in his, in his many sermons that he has here in his book. And so we know that means the house of David means the kingly line. And who was David's father? But Jesse. Ruth 4.17 um, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Yeah, Jesse was the father of David. You can read about him in 1 Samuel chapters 16 and 17 when Samuel goes to anoint David as king. He was the youngest of the seven sons that Jesse had. And in Matthew chapter 1, we have him listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, something we normally we normally just skip over it because we can't pronounce half the names. But here, look in verse 6. Uh, Jesse, the father of David, the king. You know, this is the king, not just any king. This is the ultimate king, the ultimate revelation of God about what a king ought to be like. And no, David wasn't perfect, but he did prefigure Jesus Christ, who would be one of his descendants. And look in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is to this David that God extends the covenant and makes it more specific. He already had a covenant with Abraham, and that went to the nation Israel. And then he, he pronounced a covenant with them a covenant of law based upon their life in the land that, that was given at Mount Sinai. But then he chooses David to make a particular covenant with that one would sit on his throne forever, that he would have a descendant that would reign like no one else had, and that he would reign indeed eternally. So let's read and see from Isaiah chapter 11 what this leader, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this descendant of David, our Lord Jesus Christ will rule like. Here's what it says, and we'll start uh, in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he see, his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart 
and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river and with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Well, let's begin this exposition with a word of prayer. Father God, we pray that you bless the reading and exposition of your scripture today. I pray, Lord, that you'll guide us and you'll teach us through it. Make yourself known and glorified and show us, Lord, your, your glory. For we thank you and we praise you for these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there we have a powerful testimony of what exactly this uh, ruler will be like. And I want to talk about this shoot from the stump of Jesse, and I want to bring up here a, a list of, of attributes, if you will, of what he is going to be like. And the first thing I want to point out is that he is going to be godly. And I get this primarily from verses 2 and 3. If we take a look at those verses, here's what we see. We see the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's what makes a person godly. And then notice the Spirit is described with six words. And so if you've got the Spirit of the Lord, and then you've got six other descriptions of it, you've got seven spirits. And indeed, maybe this is what's referred to in the New Testament when we read about the seven spirits in the book of Revelation. Nevertheless, here's what the Spirit of the Lord is. It's a spirit of wisdom and understanding. It's a spirit of counsel and might. It's a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Well, if you think about these words, these are the most important words found in the book of Proverbs. If you go to Proverbs, it's an extended contrast between the wise and the foolish. And it's a book of Proverbs that says, the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. And so all these things are very critically important to describing a godly person. Because in the book of Proverbs, and indeed in all of scripture, wisdom is following God. Foolishness is ignoring him or turning away from or rebelling against him. And so here we have the ultimate wisdom of God, the ultimate embodiment of the Proverbs himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all the good advice in the Proverbs. He was the one who practiced all that the Proverbs tell us to practice, to embrace wisdom, to eschew foolishness, to gather around yourself wise counsel, which he took with the Lord often in prayer, and to push away from yourself the bad counsel, the temptation of Satan, and the others who said, you should be more famous, and why don't you do this, and, and reveal yourself, and show who you are. He resisted those things. Why? Because he had the ultimate counsel. And look at the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might. That means he not only knows what to do, he not only has the Father to tell him precisely what to do, but he has the ability to do it, the counsel and the might. What kings do we have on earth that can do such a thing? They can do whatever is right, and they have the power to ha execute it absolutely. He has the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, a world that will line up with the Lord because its godly ruler lines up with the Lord. 
And look at this in verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And remember, Jesus said, It is my food to do the will of him who sent me. He likened doing the will of God, obedience to God, as food. And indeed, we saw him refreshed when he was doing the will of God. So these are important things to understand that the shoot from the stump of Jesse is very, very godly. But what else is he? He's also very equitable. If we look in verse 4 in A, it says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Well, that reminds us of him mentioning the meek of the earth in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 where it is the meek who follow him. It is the ones who have lowly of spirit that follow him. And look at this ruling in contrast to Judah, because Judah has been indicted by this point by God, starting even in chapter 1, of taking bribes, of being biased in their judgments, of oppressing the poor and deciding cases in order to please their rich friends at the expense of the poor. Yeah, the poor were oppressed there, but that's not going to be so under the rule of Jesus Christ. He decides for the meek, those who cannot, or for some reason because of humility will not, speak for themselves. Those who don't have a voice in worldly matters, those who aren't willing to get into the fray and and make a name for themselves, they will now be represented. They will now be treated with equity by the ultimate ruling, wise, and good counsel king, Jesus. And so this is indeed what we're seeing here and what we're speaking of is this very equitable God. But then there's something else here that needs to be mentioned, and it is that he is wrathful. And this is very unpopular today. As a matter of fact, you're hearing uh, probably one in a thousand preachers really talk about the wrath of God these days. And while that's not something we want to dwell on all the time, for that would be an unbalanced view of who he is and what he has done, it nevertheless is absolutely true that the Bible speaks a great deal more of wrath than it speaks of love even. Um, Not that God is not loving, but his wrath is actually an expression of that in many ways. But look at verse 4 here, and this is where we're going to take a bit of a detour, really dig into this, because this is an important point. It says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Well, one of the difficulties in Scripture is knowing when to take things literally and when not to. And when we see a passage like this, this is clearly prophetic poetry. You can tell by the formatting in your study Bibles, you know, in the Bible that you have, when it's all set off like this and not in regular paragraphs. That's one clue that we're dealing with poetry. We're dealing with, therefore, great imagery. And then this passage is borderline apocalyptic in nature, similar to passages of Daniel or parts of the book of Revelation. And that type of literature itself is highly symbolic. It doesn't mean nothing in its literal, but it means that we want to look at the whole passage, find out what the point is, and from there and from the context, understand what it's saying to us. Well, what is it saying here that he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked? Well, if you notice, this is a parallelism. 
And here we have also a chiasm. A chiasm is when there's something in the middle and it's surrounded by something that comes before and something that comes after. What comes before and after here is the striking the earth and killing the wicked. And so this is the judgment, the wrath of God. And what's in the middle? The rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips. In the middle is the instrument of his wrath. So it is this weapon of his mouth that will bring his wrath to bear. Well, what is that weapon? Well, it's not the only place in Isaiah where this is spoken of. Also in Isaiah 49 too, we see it, where it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Well, that's an interesting verse, and I bet it's familiar to you because you've heard it before, uh, and you've heard it in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is described uh, as having in his hand seven stars, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And so this is carried over into the book of Revelation. It's also found in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea, where he says, uh, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Okay, so here we have the mouth weapon again, but it's in parallel to the prophets. Do you see it's in parallel? He says, I've hewn them by the prophets and in parallel. In other words, saying the same thing twice. I have slain them with the words of my mouth. Here we have prophets with the mouth. So prophets, then we can understand he's talking about the word of God. He's talking about what God has said to people. And this is the interpretation. What is the weapon of his mouth? It is his word. This is the interpretation in the New Testament. Look how the book of Hebrews puts it and how it describes it. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Sound familiar? Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word itself, so powerful, so sharp, that it can tell the difference between soul and spirit. Human beings can't do that. The words are used almost synonymously in the Bible for the human condition. We are bodies with a soul slash spirit. We can't tell the difference between the two. There's so much overlap in how it's used, but God's word can tell the difference. And then the analogy is given to of joints and of marrow. You know, that, that a good carver of meat knows the difference. He can get right in there in the joint. He knows his way around the body of what it is that he is butchering at the time. But now look at this, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, that's what it really comes down to, is the word of God reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what we see, and this is the, the word that is then going to judge. Look how Jesus puts this in John chapter 12, where he plainly states this great truth. In John chapter 12, this is in the last week of Jesus' uh, ministry before he is crucified, and he says this about the people. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. And that's the part everybody wants to embrace. They want to say, Jesus didn't came to judge, he came to save. And he says exactly this. He says, for I did not come to the to judge the world, but to save the world. And people celebrate over that and say, Jesus is nice and Jesus is happy and all love. And, and he didn't come to judge, he came to save. 
but read the next verse, and this will almost always get you out of trouble in misunderstanding the Bible, is read the verses around and see what it's actually saying. Look what verse 48 says. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The standard of judgment for human beings will be the word of God that he spoke through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we understand it rightly and when we survey scripture, we find out he is all of the word, Old Testament and new, that it is his word. He has spoken through Jesus Christ and it will judge us on the last day. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Boy, this is important. Because the right understanding then, what is this weapon of the mouth? What, you know, the, the mouth weapon that we see here with which he strikes the earth and judges the wicked and brings them to death. It's just as it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, that this, this sharp sword from his mouth strikes down nations. He rules them with a rod of iron. This is the word of God. And so here in Isaiah 11:4, he strikes the earth with the word of God, the gospel truth, the words that Jesus said that will indeed be the standard of judgment that will divide the righteous from the wicked. And so this is the understanding of what does it mean that he is wrathful? He is wrathful in that he is given of his word and his word is what will judge people. And that judgment will be final and absolute. And at the end, there will be a great separation one from another. Now, he is also peaceful. Now, seems ironic and maybe even contradictory that I put peaceful or wrathful and then the word peaceful. But... Look in verses uh, 6 through 9 here in the book of Isaiah. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, the fat calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Now, again, we must take into account the entire context to understand what is being said here. That this is peace being brought upon the earth. It's not an exposition of the relationship between God and animals that will take place in the new heavens and a new earth. Now, it happens to be that. I do happen to believe that there is some literalness to this passage. Because if you think before the flood, read the scriptures, before the flood, no one ate meat. Man didn't. Animals didn't. Everyone ate plants. After the flood, it's given to man and, of course, then by implication to the animals as a concession. In other words, I believe that the earth was so radically different that it became necessary to take in other sources of food other than just the fruit of the trees that was in the garden and then the grain and stuff that was available afterwards. And so this is God rolling everything back to the conditions that were in Eden long ago. What was it like there? Well, man and animals lived in harmony, and man was given dominion over animals, dominion such that all the animals were brought to him, and he named them. Okay, That's important to understand, because they, he, the animals were brought to him. They did not try to eat him. 
He did not try to eat them, and he named them. And the giving of names in the Bible is very significant. And that expressed the dominion of mankind over the earth. This is going to be set right. We will once again be at peace with all of creation. And this, you know, and this is indicative of such a great peace that it's one thing for you and I to stop fighting. It's another thing for us to live in a world so full of peace that not only do you and I fight, but what we understand as the natural order today is turned upside down and rearranged. Where it's perfectly, we see today, oh, that lion just took down that gazelle and he's making a meal of him right now. Oh, that's just the normal way of things. That's the circle of life. And we'll make nice little songs about it or whatever to try to make an easier pill to swallow. But the fact is we look at things like that and there's something about that doesn't sit right with us. Even if we're hunters, even if we understand good stewardship and right use of resources, and it is permissible for us to to hunt and to kill and to eat animals and everything else. But there's still something inside us that says, this isn't quite right. And that something is the truth of God that's written on our hearts. That something's not right. That will be revert. That, that will be reversed until the time that we will be at such utter and complete peace that no animal will be a threat to any human being, nor will the human beings be a threat to the animals. But we will be their stewards and we'll be those who care for them. And just as it was in the garden, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so this is the great and peaceful prince. And Jesus, in order for this to happen, I'm going to go back and I want to show you, I've put wrathful right next to peaceful in order for there to be peace on earth. The wicked must be separated out of it. That some will be unqualified to stay because they will not have peace with God. They will not surrender to God. And it is God's created order. And as such, they, they cannot exist in it. And so there's a great separation. This is precisely what Jesus described in his earthly ministry when he said these things from Matthew chapter 10. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a great separation that takes place. In Matthew chapter 25, he describes that separation this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So here Jesus plainly speaks of his return. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Okay, so there's a great separation that happens in the final judgment. Um, this is powerfully and true, and and true. It's something that we need to understand and we need to 
embrace is that he is both wrathful, but it is that very wrath that will bring peace. And people say, you shouldn't talk about him being wrathful for God is love. Yes, he is. And in order to love, he must bring wrath and he must bring this division. He must bring a separation or there will never be peace. And so he will divide and he will bring this perfect peace, peace so deep that it affects the animal kingdom. Peace so deep that there will not be violence or tears or hurt or death in the world anymore. And we will be restored to have true dominion over the creation as we did in the garden. Now something else that is not described perfectly here, though it's implied through the whole passage, is this that the Lord Jesus is victorious. In order for him to be this ruler, he has to be victorious. And clearly he's going to subdue all of the nations. And so this is implied throughout the entire passage. Victory is certain. And this is a victory that is coming right now. This is a battle that is happening now. Jesus Christ is subduing the nations in the present tense. Right now, today. By the spreading of the gospel, every time someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, repents of their sin and is saved, he is moved from death to life. He's moved from being a citizen of the world to being a citizen of heaven. In other words, he changes sides. And this is how the Lord Jesus Christ is conquering the nations right now today. Now he will come back and he will finish the job ultimately by separating at the final judgment. But right now, the gospel is the living and active sword of God that's going out into the world and dividing soul and spirit. It is dividing one person from another, those who will believe and repent in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who will not have him that will go into everlasting contempt. And so he is victorious in all this. He is a king that does not fail and he doesn't need to compromise. He doesn't need to make deals. He is executing his will upon the earth perfectly, the victorious king. And he is not only victorious, he is gathering. This is the mode of his victory, is that he is gathering to himself these people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Look in Isaiah chapter 11, starting verse 10. That day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, coming soon in the series, there will be a message that I will have regarding this theme of the faithful remnant of God. The faithful remnant of God that's always present. There's always someone who believes in God. There's always those who are being faithful to him, even when it seems the whole world or his whole nation has turned against him. There are those like Isaiah. There are those like Elijah. There are those who are still faithful to him. And the concept runs throughout the book of Isaiah. So that'll be a great sermon. But it begins, this idea of the faithful remnant, always begins with the people of Israel. When the Lord talks about taking them into exile, and then he talks about returning them from exile, which is all predicted in the book of Deuteronomy, um, he speaks of recovering from exile a faithful remnant that he will bring back to the land. And this is what he speaks of here as well. Take a look at the scriptures here. He says, um, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains for his people. And notice, 
at the uh, list of people here. Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coastlands of the sea. The coastlands of the sea is a phrase that just means all that other stuff out there. And I think for those of you that are in other parts of the world besides the, the Mesopotamian region and the land over towards uh, Shinar, Iraq, and, and all the way to India and all that, those were known regions to the Israelites. But the coastlands of the sea, that's us over here in the Americas, you over there in the Australias, you over there in, the, in East Asia. You know, this is talking about you, the coastlands of the sea, everywhere else, in other words. But look at this. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so this is profound. This is gathering the people of Israel from all around the world. And people say, Oh, that's what happened in 1948 when they came back together as a nation. The United Nations put them there in 1948, which is also in fulfillment of the scripture. Uh, this is what it's speaking about. But no, it's more than that, because look, uh, the Lord um, is making a highway to bring people in from all around the world, Egypt and Assyria. We'll get to that in a minute. That he's a signal, it says back there in verse 11, for the peoples. Okay, he will raise a signal for the nations. And this becomes a very important word in what we're studying here. This is not just for the people of Israel. This is for all the nations. And you get to the book of Revelation at the end of the story. And what's the refrain? That he has gathered for himself a people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And he goes to great pains using four words to indicate this is open to everyone on planet Earth. And so this is very important. But now this imagery in verses 15 and 16, what is this talking about? The Lord will utterly destroy, destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And many people will say, okay, this hasn't really happened in history. Something supernatural is going to happen to the Nile River. That's the river in Egypt. That's their main river. And it's critical to Egypt, but it's also a very wide river. It's a very deep river. And when it floods, it can be very rapid. It's very hard to cross. It is quite the obstacle. And look at the next part of this here. And this is related. It's the same passage. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Well, Syria was to the north of Israel. If you go north from Judah, you go through the northern kingdom Israel, you go through Syria, and you would get up there to where Nineveh is in Assyria. And as you travel north, there's a lot of hills. There's quite a few rivers. Uh, there's a lot of deep valleys. You know, it's rugged country. So a highway is representative of something that is going to ease the travel to Jerusalem, that is to the mountain of the Lord. And this is what is being spoken of in Egypt as well, is this is not so much a statement about something that's literally going to happen to the Nile River. This is a statement about an illustration of, a symbolic portrayal of the fact that the Lord is going to make it easy to come to him. How is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do that by raising a signal for the nations and calling them in, so to speak as it says in verse 12, in verse 10, as it says, you know, shall extend a signal for the people. Um, 
the nations, you know, the resting place will be glorious. In other words, it will become famous what Jesus did, you know, his resting place will become glorious. And we go all the way to the back of the or beginning of the passage. This is what is being said here, that this righteous branch is going to be a ruler, not just of Judah or Jerusalem or even the nation Israel, but of the world. And he is going to be approachable by the world. He is going to be a signal that is set up by the world. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ said this during his ministry here. He, he said very plainly that if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Being lifted up is a euphemism for crucifixion because you're lifted up. And it was a nicer way of saying than the, the harsh word that speaks of being crucified. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. In other words, once I'm crucified, begins the drawing of all the nations to him. And it is true. And you think about what happened at Pentecost and what the great commission of the Lord was. The great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ to our church. In other words, the church's number one priority is to go and make disciples of all nations. And he gave he gave that with all authority in heaven and on earth. Let me take you there just for a moment. He, he comes along and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, this is like he's deputizing us, okay? Because he's telling his disciples to go and make disciples. Well, what do disciples do? Well, they do what Jesus told the disciples to do, to go and make disciples of all nations with all authority in heaven and on earth. So there's no earthly authority that can tell us not to make disciples, they can persecute us and they can try to stop us and everything else, but that's where our submission to governing authorities ends. And you can see this lift out in the book of Acts, that in the book of Acts, when the governing authorities, the same people that crucified Jesus, told the disciples to, to cool it, you know, their, their message back to them was, should we obey God or you? Well, it was obvious their answer was, we're going to obey God on this and we're going to keep preaching the gospel. And they did. And it changed the world can change your life too. This is the gathering that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing, that he is pulling together to himself people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language to know him, to glorify him. He has paved the way to make it easy for us to approach by giving himself as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is the word of God that goes out that Jesus came and he lived a perfectly righteous life. He was God in the flesh. He was the God-man. And he laid down this sinless life so that all who would believe in him, their sins were paid for by him. And then he rose from the dead because death couldn't keep him. It had no claim over him because he hadn't committed any sin himself. So his offering, being the offering of God himself, was so sufficient as to cover the sins of all the world. And so he rose again, and then he has the right to give life to all who will believe in him, those whose sins are nailed to the cross. And then he offers to those who believe in him his righteousness. In other words, all the good credit he earned for perfectly obeying God all of his life, 
It's transferred to his people so that when the, the Lord God looks upon the cross, he saw our sins. But when he looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And all you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. And that's my first encouragement for you today. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've seen it revealed here in Isaiah chapter 11. He is coming back to rule and he will not fail. He will separate sheep from the goats, those who believe from those who do not believe. And he will not miss any because the word of God, it discerns everything. And so he will not miss anyone. No one will be able to fake him out. No one with false works. No one who has lived a life that the world considers perfect when in their heart they've harbored sin. It's not going to work. Only in Jesus Christ can we be saved. He has all rights to dictate the terms. He is the sovereign creator. He is the one who laid down his life. And so his terms are this, complete and unconditional surrender. Give your sins over to him and give your life over to him. Repent and trust in him and you will be saved. Because what we see here in his promise to bring back Israel from from being in exile after he has punished them, these are parallel promises to the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. So what we want to do is we want to first embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, if you've already done that, then spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, that those who truly have tasted of living water, that those who have been brought from death to life, that those who have been awakened from a slumber, so to speak, will want to share the good news. The words that we just saw in the book of Isaiah, these are the words of Christ, his judgment and his wrath, the dividing tool of the righteous branch. And those who believe in him and trust in him are the light in the world. They are the city on the hill. He told to Peter and the others, he said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, all spiritual transactions are happening through the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ today. The only way for anyone to be saved in the world today is that one of us, the children of God, will bring the word of God to them. And you say, well, why would God choose to do it that way? Well, no, that's how he's chosen to do it. He gets us involved in what he's doing, which is the, the, the kindness of a loving father, the goodness of a, of a wonderful God is to actually involve his creation in what he's doing. And I want you to think about this in the book of Acts when there was an Ethiopian eunuch uh, returning to his home from Jerusalem after being up there to worship. He's reading the scroll of, guess what, Isaiah. And he's not understanding it. So what does God do? God sends an angel? No. God miraculously speaks to this man in audible voice? No. God magically just puts the truth in his head? No. He sends someone from the church, his servant Philip, to come down there and explain the words of Isaiah, explain the word of God. And he was convicted and he was baptized that very day and took the gospel back to Ethiopia. 
This is what we do. We spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is no higher privilege and no more important purpose for us to live for on planet Earth. And every believer from the greatest to the least are involved in this endeavor. Disciples make disciples. That's what we do, period. And this, most of these purposes and plans and accomplishments of the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ are going to happen outside the walls of your church outside your living room. It's going to happen in the living rooms of other people. It's going to happen in the coffee shops and in the marketplaces. It's going to happen in the street. It's going to happen in your neighbor's yard as you speak to them gospel conversations so that they can be on the right side of the final separation. This is what's at stake. It's life or death. And we only have the message of salvation. And then finally, the first thing, and you know, probably most important thing is to give thanks to the Lord. Because I want to show you where this passage goes in Isaiah chapter 12. In Isaiah chapter 12, it is simply a hymn of praise. It is the response to what we find out in chapter 11. And I want to show that to you. And I want to share it with you. And this is where I want us to end because I want on our lips to be the words of praise. I want our last thoughts to be, how good is this God? that we look around at the world and we see all the terrible things happening and we say, God, how can you let these things happen? And his answer back to us is loud and clear, I'm not. This is temporary. And it's but for a time and it will all turn out for the good. And those who trust him know that. And those who trust him can sing his praises as we see here Isaiah singing in chapter 12. So look at this with me here. It, it says this, and this is, called the uh, the servant song, one, one of the servant songs. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. As we will come to find in the book of Isaiah, the inhabitants of Zion, of this renewed and restored and future, beautiful and just and righteous Zion, are believers in Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what we do. They came to the same conclusion I did, which means I must be on the right track. That we will give thanks to the Lord, that he has become, and notice here in the, in the verse 2, he is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Isaiah made it personal. He made it singular. He applied it to himself. He saw, Lord, you've become my salvation. You've done this. You were the one who will ultimately gather to yourself people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Oh, may we be in that number. And may we please go and preach that many others will be also. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And please contact us with your concerns, with any uh, prayer requests that you have, uh, with any need for any other information. Please contact us. You can learn about us at whitesrun.org. You can email me 
at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And look for more in the Isaiah series, Let Us Reason Together. God bless you.